It constantly amazes me, both as a musician and a music lover, that we as musicians deal with such a limited vocabulary. We have all of 12 notes at our disposal in our Western classical music system. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And then the sequence starts all over again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Goodness, in the English alphabet, we have 26 characters. I just read the other day about uh, an alphabet in one of the Asian countries that has 74 characters. And yet every song, every opera, every musical comedy, every accompaniment to a rap song that you've ever heard is made up of a combination of just these 12 notes. And think of the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pieces of music there are in the world. Just astounding. Possibilities are limitless. Long ago, composers discovered that there were ways of conveying information purely by using notes, both overtly and covertly. Uh, one of the most famous examples is uh, Robert Schumann in an early piano piece of his called the Abegg Variations, which he dedicated to a woman. We're still not sure if she was a real woman or sort of an idealized, fictitious woman that he dreamt up. Uh, but uh, her name, in any case, was Abegg, A-B-E-G-G. And so he took those letters and took the musical pitches that correspond to them, A-B-A-G-G, and out came this uh, lovely theme that began He was off and running. So the, the nucleus of the theme of these variations was the name Abegg. Well, there are countless similar instances in music of taking a word, a name, a series of letters, and seeing how they correspond to musical pitches and going from there. There's one that I just had pointed out to me recently that I think is so cool, I'm going to share it with you. And that has to do with Gustav Holst the composer of The Planets, one of the most famous 20th century works uh, in the repertoire. Holst was, by all accounts, an incredibly modest man, kind, soft-spoken. Somebody once said that, that the most vile language they ever heard him use when he was angry was, oh, that's about as bad as he got. Uh, but there was one case where he let his ego kind of come to the fore justifiably so, and it happens to be in the planets. Now, if you take his first name, Gustav, there are three letters in it that you can assign to musical pitches. G, obviously. Then we come to S. S, you say. I thought that the musical letters in the alphabet were A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'm going back to A. In German, they have a few different syllables that they assign to musical pitches than we do. And when they refer to E flat, they refer to it as S, capital E, small s. So then we have the A in Gustav. And finally, we have the first letter of his last name, H. H, yes, again, leaning on the German musical alphabet, when they say B, they mean B flat, but when they say H, they mean B natural. So in this case, it's this B natural. 
And if you've been paying close attention, you realize that these four pitches come out The first four notes of the penultimate movement of the planets, Uranus the Magician, in which Holst uses these four letters from his own name as if to say, well, I'm kind of a magician myself when it comes to music, and builds this incredible symphonic movement about magic out of this four note theme from his own name. Isn't that fun? Composers are constantly using music and musical devices to tell stories. And this is particularly useful in operas, in ballets, in film scores, in anything that has a program. And sometimes you can lead the audience by the nose without them knowing it and give them some information in notes without coming right out and telling it in the words, in the lyrics, whatever. And one of my favorite instances thereof is early on in Leonard Bernstein's musical West Side Story. I'm eagerly awaiting to see what Steven Spielberg has done in his new film of this classic musical. Um, in the second song on the show, we have Tony, the romantic lead, the stand-in for Romeo, uh, who has drifted away from the street gang, the Jets, He's aspiring to better things. He's feeling romantic rumblings inside of himself. He knows that somewhere out there is someone, something that is meant just for him. And even though he's shying away from gang activities, his best friend Riff begs him to come to the dance where there's going to be a confrontation with the rival gang, the Sharks. And he extracts from Tony a promise that Tony will come to the dance. And Riff's parting words are, Maybe the thing you're looking for will be there at the dance. And Tony muses on this and he says, gee, maybe he's right. And the orchestra comes in, please forgive me, I'm not a singer. Could be, who knows? It's only just out of reach, down the block, on the beach, etc. Now, if we take those three pitches, who knows? Tony's saying, who knows? Maybe he's right. Maybe the thing I'm looking for is at the dance. Who knows? Now, if we take those three pitches, C, F sharp, and G, we take that first C and just drop down one octave to the C below it. But we retain the F sharp and the G in their original position, and we get Maria. So Bernstein is telling us that what Tony is looking for is Maria. And she is indeed going to be there at the dance and make all his romantic dreams come true. Film composers are also uh, very, very dependent on the idea of conveying moods, information in music before it actually happens on the screen. And one of the most fun examples from the golden age of Hollywood has to do with a uh, score by Bernard Herrmann, for me, the greatest of all film composers. And I just realized that I would have made him very angry by referring to him that way. He, he said, I'm not a film composer. I'm a composer who writes for film. For him, it was a very important distinction. The first film for which he ever wrote music was Citizen Kane. Not a bad way to start one's film composing career. 
And he got very, very heavily involved in the story, uh, worked closely with Orson Welles. They were continuing the um, colleagueship that they had developed at CBS Radio. And there's one marvelous moment in Citizen Kane where Hermann tells us something long before it happens. Uh, do you remember that almost montage-like sequence where we see Kane having come to adulthood, finally putting in motion his life, assembling his newspaper staff, becoming engaged to a very desirable society woman, maybe even showing the, the first glimmerings of his political career. And at one point, Kane comes into his newspaper staff, a little bit breathless, a little bit tongue-tied, and he tells them that he's going to be married. Now, up until this point, the music has been kind of fun and giddy, and uh, it doesn't translate well to the piano, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, it's been doing this in a very boisterous A-flat major. And at this point, the music gets a little bit wonky. Suddenly, uh, there's a trumpet solo in that same key in A flat, but the accompaniment goes into A. So we've got this clash of, of melody and accompaniment. And the trumpet solo goes like this. And then back to What's going on here? Well, Bernard Herrmann was an early music scholar way before the term existed. According to uh, many people who were familiar with him, he knew so much about Baroque music, about what was then little known Baroque music. And not only did he know Messiah, but he knew, I think, every other oratorio that Handel had ever written, including one, which wasn't performed that much back in those days, called Judas Maccabeus. And in the third part of Judas Maccabeus, there's a big rousing chorus that goes like this. And the words are, see the conquering hero comes. See the conquering hero comes. It's a great paean to heroism and, and uh, valiant. Uh, doings. And so Hermann takes that theme and he sort of cocks a snook at it. He has it go in the wrong direction at the end, ending on this blue note where it doesn't belong. And so that, coupled with the accompaniment in the wrong key, is making a statement. This man is no hero. He's going to sell out. He's going to become corrupt. He's going to give up all of his lofty ideals. And all this Hermann manages to do with a few well-placed bars of trumpet solo, um, trashing Handel in the process, but for good reason. Composers can also use notes and themes to uh, express homage to someone else. And there are several wonderful examples of this in music of a composer 
taking a nod to another composer. One of the most famous is uh, an homage that Beethoven paid to Mozart. Uh, you all know Mozart's 40th Symphony, which uh, Maestro Paul and the Festival Orchestra performed so beautifully a couple of seasons back. That's the one that starts that one. Um, the theme that begins the last movement is this very skittish, uh, kind of frantic allegro. Okay. Well, Beethoven had what was characterized by some historians as kind of a love-hate relationship with Mozart. Obviously venerated him apparently, according to some sources, was always a little bit ticked off that Mozart couldn't make room in his own schedule to take Beethoven on as a pupil. But that didn't prevent Beethoven from uh, adoring him as a composer. Apparently, one of the few uh, piano concertos that Beethoven took in his repertoire that wasn't by himself was the Mozart C minor piano concerto, which he apparently played quite beautifully. Well, uh, in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the infamous you all know that strange, muted little theme that begins the scherzo movement. Now, wait a minute. Well, what if I took the Mozart and I put it in 3-4 time? Uh-oh. Beethoven clearly tipping his hat to his beloved Mozart. There are many such examples in music. And one of the uh, composers who loved paying homage to other composers was Leonard Bernstein, certainly uh, um, mentioned on more than one occasion as being a, a great eclectic. And how could he not be, since he was one of the world's greatest conductors who had so many other people's scores passing through his psyche uh, uh, from week to week and month to month. Uh, Beethoven was a very special case. He was always honoring Beethoven in some way or other. There's a lengthy quote from Beethoven's Ninth in, Beethoven, in uh, Bernstein's Mass. There is uh, an homage to the oboe cadenza in Beethoven's Fifth in Bernstein's Divertimento for Orchestra. But there are two instances in, once again, West Side Story, where he was clearly paying homage to Beethoven. One is uh, in the Beethoven string quartet, which we call the Grosse Fuge, the Grand Fugue, the Great Fugue, which starts with this very imperious gesture. Well, Bernstein took those first four pitches and used them as the basis for what we call a tone row, where he used all 12 tones of the uh, Western classical scale. So he began it. Then he went on from there. Now, if I just add a couple of finger snaps to give the impression that I'm a jazz guy, I get. fugue that they dance after the song, uh, boy, boy, crazy boy. Well, it's a 12-tone fugue with Beethoven's Grosse Fuge as the starting point. But uh, of a more lyrical nature is 
my favorite song in the show. Bernstein was very clearly and self-consciously calling into play the gorgeous slow movement from Beethoven's Emperor Concerto, uh, which, uh, and forgive me, I haven't the score in front of me, but... Uh, Here are old friends somewhere in there. There's a place for us. So once again, Bernstein uh, tipping his hat to his very beloved Ludwig van Beethoven. I've saved the most heartbreaking story for last because like any true romantic, I love a sad ending. Um, this is a story about Sergei Rachmaninoff, one of the greatest musicians who ever graced the 20th century, brilliant pianist, great composer. People who played under him said that if he had focused his attention on just being conductor, he would have gone down as one of the great conductors. There are a few recorded examples of him um, conducting his own music with the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Third Symphony and the symphonic poem, The Isle of the Dead. And oh my gosh, did they play for him. He must have been a giant on the podium. Um, Rachmaninoff's career as a composer got off to a somewhat rocky start. Uh, famously, he wrote his first symphony and the world premiere was nothing short of a disaster. Uh, I think that there might have been inadequate rehearsal time that came into play. The conductor, um, it is rumored, was inebriated at the time of the world premiere. And the piece just bombed. Rachmaninoff himself said that it was so horribly played that he did not recognize his own music. It was that ghastly. And just to drive a final nail into the coffin, when the review came out uh, a day or two later, the critic said something like, if there were a contest in hell for the best piece of music, Rachmaninoff's symphony would win first prize. Well, it threw Rachmaninoff into a total dither. Uh, he asked that the score and parts to the symphony be destroyed. And he went into a funk and had to be drawn out of said funk by a hypnotherapist who worked with him, put him into a trance uh, several times a week and just said, you will write a piano concerto. It will be of great quality. You will go home and begin your piano concerto. And lo and behold, the result was the piano concerto number two, arguably his most famous piece to this day, uh, which he dedicated to his hypnotherapist, uh, Dr. Dahl. Um, so cut to several decades later, and Rachmaninoff's final masterpiece, the Symphonic Dances, essentially a three-movement symphony, but he called it Symphonic Dances. Brilliant work, unbelievably orchestrated. The, 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 the thematic content, the way that he 
develops it. it, it it's truly a masterpiece. The bulk of the first movement is based on this very stamping, percussive accompaniment to a kind of a skittish theme. Okay. Uh, and then there's a more lyrical second theme for, of all instruments, the saxophone, the only time that Rachmaninoff ever used it. But what baffled people was this coda to the first movement which introduced some thematic material that had nothing at all to do with what had proceeded, nor did it tip off anything that was to come in the final two movements. The music is so gorgeous that nobody complained, uh, but the coda is based on this. Ah, that chord. Well, Rachmaninoff never said anything about it. He died two years after he completed these symphonic dances, and that was theoretically the end of the story. Until several years later, when they found a set of parts to the disastrously premiered first symphony from decades before. Apparently somebody didn't get the order to destroy it. They bundled up the parts and shoved them away in a, on a shelf in the bowels of the conservatory theater. And by taking the parts and copying them out one by one, they were able to reconstruct Rachmaninoff's first symphony. Turns out it's a pretty good work. It's a very fine symphony. Certainly was deserving of a better premiere than it got. And what do you think the very first theme is that the orchestra belts out in a unison? Which Rachmaninoff, who carried that theme around and the heartbreak of that disastrous premiere in his soul for all those decades, had to say one more time. assuming that it would be uh, a very private commiseration with himself, which is now a very public one. Thank you, Mr. Rahmaninoff. <laughs>